You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to the show. Stuart Goldsmith here. Thank you so much, uh, those of you who got in touch about last week's episode with Russell Kane. It was a banger, wasn't it? And remember, you can get the extra content from that one at comedianscomedian.com slash insiders, as well as all the extra content from every episode that has it. This one doesn't. It's an hour and a half banger of an episode with the fabulous Bethany Black. And Bethany had so much to say and articulated it so well that I just couldn't make decisions as to what to put on the insiders feed. So here it is in all its glory for everyone. Everyone. And uh, on the subject of all its glory, we're going to be talking about the price of being a social justice warrior. We're going to talk about Bethany's diagnoses um, with ADHD, autism and agoraphobia concurrently as they came. Um, we're going to talk about her disappointment that her fans, this is lovely, I don't want to spoiler it, but honestly, there's a lovely conversation about the recognition that her fans are not necessarily the people she wanted to impress at school. They're people like her. That is such an insight. <laughs> I really enjoyed that. Um, we'll talk about uh, the hard gigging years um, and we'll talk about the fact that at the moment, um, because uh, Bethany and her partner, I believe, are immunocompromised, she has only left the house three times in the last year. We'll get into that um, as well as some difficult stuff which requires a content warning. Uh, we're going to talk about some stuff that Bethany's talked a lot about on stage, but we will be mentioning uh, suicide attempts. So there's a little content warning for you if you are concerned about stuff like that. And we'll talk about the cost of sharing enough of yourself that you make a lasting connection with your audience, exactly what it costs you to share that much. And there's a little bit of stuff at the end about Twitch. It's an absolute crack of an episode and it's all here for you, but why not join the Insiders Club anyway in celebration of the fact that this time you didn't have to. Here's Bethany Black. I've got so many questions. You are a very broad kind of a performer. There's the acting, there's the the comedy. And then we, inescapably, we are coming up for a year on the pandemic. And I think yeah, because yeah, yeah. you you've started twitching. So let's talk about that first. You, you've been on Twitch since when? Uh, 14th of November is the first date. Like I'd set up because I was doing uh, Mark Watson had been doing a couple of 24 hour shows on there and he got me on um the last one which i think was sort of like end of october beginning of november it was around i think it was halloween weekend um okay. because uh yeah and said like what would you like to do for it and i was like oh well i've got a talent that um it's partly because i'm autistic that if you tell me something i can just absorb huge amounts of information and then recount it 
um, on okay. on any topic really over a short amount of time. If you give me a short amount of time to do some reading, I can talk to it with an expert level of accuracy within sort of twenty four hours, if that's what you want. And I would like, resist the urge now to try and test you on this. A because I don't have access to any knowledge yeah, in my yeah. brain or in any any sources <laughs> nearby. Uh, yeah, so he went. Oh, that'd be brilliant. So they got me on the twenty four hour show to do. Uh, he sent me away, gave me uh, what well, I think he gave me something like twelve hours to learn everything that I could uh, about frogs. Uh, not frogs, oh, toads, rather. Wow. Uh, toads. Yeah, which okay. was great because that meant meant I didn't have to do anything about frogs. I could go and go, oh, yeah, well, all toads are <laughs> frogs, but not all frogs are toads. So uh, you've essentially gone and cut down about 60% of the information I would have needed to have learned. Um, and they gave me this at like 2 o'clock in the morning and I had to go back on at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. And I was like, right, well, I'm going to need eight hours to sleep. So, uh, yeah, I'm going to go and do that. Four hours of cramming about toads. Four hours okay. of cramming about toads and went on and like did, gave a 15-minute talk about toads. Uh, do, can you still access all I'm not going to test you. Can, do, do you use... Are you able to still access all of that information? I can access short-term memory. Uh, I can access most of that information. Some of it, the, some of the finer details that I've almost certainly forgotten, but okay. most of it has, has stuck in there. Like, uh, yeah. When did you When did you become aware in your life that that was a a thing you can do, and b that that was unusual? Uh, when I was little, like from being very little, I just because I was uh, I was quite a solitary kid, and I used to like sit and watch. Uh, I used to get up on a Sunday morning and watch things like uh, The Open University and, and stuff like that on BBC Two and just sit there for hours and then go up to my mum and go, did you know that a Google is the longest number that they have in the universe, which is a one followed by 6,000 zeros? And, and like and just doing like, and just coming up with like just all of the information that was out there and going, all oh, right, okay, I'm going to store this. Even stuff I didn't understand. I could then like much later recite that. My parents, um, the in the thing that made me realize that it was a bit odd <laughs> was that uh, when I was very I must have been about three or four years old my parents had someone come around to the house to do some work uh, a, a builder and I just followed him around talking to him because that was what I did as a child just follow around adults talking at them for hours on end um, and went out as he was sort of like walking backwards and forwards to his van I went oh that used to be our carpet that we used to have in the living room and my mum went, no, 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 that's that, that we, that's a carpet like the one that we use, that we used to have. And the the builder started looking all sheepish and went, actually, no, that isn't. That is actually, um, yeah, uh, no, she's right. I um I was driving past and you, when you threw it out and this is the house that I actually got it from. <laughs> went, oh, that would do good in the back of my van. Um, it is the actual one. <laughs> um. And my mum was just like, well, how did you know that? And I went, because there's a patch missing there and there's a patch missing there. And I couldn't have been more than six months old when it had gone. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Uh, so my brain just has always just any information that gets put into it just sticks and doesn't go anywhere. Um, and as I've got older, it's got worse. But um, for a lot of the time when I was when I was a small child, I had like total recall of of pretty much everything. So I never revised. I was going to ask when you sorry when when you said uh, it's got worse. Yeah, I was going to ask whether you meant oh I, it's worse. I can remember everything, everything without yeah. fail, and it's murder. <laughs> you mean actually it's it's degraded slightly. So the yeah, total it has total, yeah yeah it's degraded. Um, and I, I almost entirely put that down to the amount of drugs that I did as a teenager. <laughs> okay okay yeah. uh, and in my in my 20s um yeah but up until that point like i never revised for anything i never revised for um anything throughout school or through uh right the way through till i'd done till the end of doing my degree it's really only been in acting now that i have to go over and over and over things in order to force words to stick in my head 
Oh, that's unusual. So you don't have you don't have recall for scripts? Not anymore. Used to. <laughs> when I was little. Like I was able to memorise I memorised the entirety of um the Blackadder the second scripts when I was about six or seven years old. Like okay. every single word, word for word. And we didn't have a video recorder in our house until the mid nineties. So this was like I'd seen them maybe. From a once single or, viewing. From a single viewing, yeah, yeah. Oh man! Okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Right. And listen, we, we'll loop, we'll loop back to Twitch because I want to pursue this. I, I I know that in 2018, and this is an extraordinary sentence, you were diagnosed with autism, ADHD, OCD, and agoraphobia. Yeah. Is that in one session or no. just in one year? Because let, let's talk about this. And I don't want to I don't want to over focus on these things. Obviously, they are not uh, everything that defines you, but no. I know that you talk about them yeah. on online, and I know you talk about them in in your work. Let's just get into the extent to which... Okay, the follow-up question is the extent to which those things, that diagnosis either uh, defined you or helped you define yourself or what what you kind of learned as a result of that diagnosis. And the initial question is, in one session? That's the, that's the <laughs> yeah, first question. Yeah, yeah. No, it was not. I, um, I'd been seeing a therapist because I was really struggling. Um, and I, we were just like the, the agoraphobia diagnosis was one that sort of, that blindsided me a little bit. Cause I was, we were in the, in the session and she went, so what, what do you think has been causing this agoraphobia? And I was like, what are you talking about? I'm not agoraphobic. Like agoraphobia, that's like, you know, uh, the guy out of game on who's just like stays at home and lives in a fantasy world or, you know, like Sigourney Weaver in copycat where she just communicates with people via the internet. Oh, fuck. Yeah, no. I am. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I am. Um, and it was over the course of about six weeks when we were talking about that, that she, uh, that I at one point just went, oh, because I'm autistic, because I'd known that I was autistic for a long time before I got a diagnosis. Um, okay. And it's one of those things that when people who are autistic go to their doctor and they go, I think I'm autistic, doctors, I think, assume oh, you've done a BuzzFeed quiz of what neurodivergence am I? And it's come up with, <laughs> with autistic. <laughs> ah, yeah, six questions, right. I don't believe you. I whereas, mean, that, whereas the what... idea, Sorry, the idea, just to stay on that for a second, the idea of a BuzzFeed quiz about one's own neurodivergence is one of the most internet things I've ever heard. That's beautifully put. <laughs> yes, okay. <laughs> um, yeah, whereas, the, whereas, you know, most people who go to a doctor and go, I think I'm autistic, they're saying, I think I'm autistic because they haven't got a diagnosis yet and therefore don't want to be exact because that is not a thing that autistic people are great at. Um, yes, okay, yeah. <laughs> b- being exact when they're not entirely sure. Um, and what it usually means is that they've spent the last two to three years researching absolutely everything that is available or, well, studying everything that is available because uh, they're not <laughs> they're not researching anything. They've not got funding. They've, uh, they're not getting sure, it peer-reviewed. Sure, sure. Um, yeah. Yeah, just like studying everything that they can about autism and going, huh, I absolutely match this. Right. Okay. So I need, cause I've my, my two nephews, uh, my sister's got identical twins who are both um, autistic. And, um, it was from that and through spending time with my sister and uh, through her talking about that and going through the developmental stages and going at ah, these were all things that happened with you when you were growing up. Um, and so I mentioned it offhandedly to my, therapist and she just went well, would you like an autism diagnosis and I went uh yeah cool let's do that so she put me uh so she I got on the waiting list for that and it was 18 months until they got me in and I did the first half of it and whilst I was there 
it was beautiful because like the um university of york was doing a study into people who were diagnosed late in life that they're autistic and so they said oh if you're willing to fill in this questionnaire you can get a 20 pound amazon voucher um and <laughs> and if it's you, a prize for your buzzfeed quiz yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but this was like in the first stage and they went and it, uh if you are autistic then we'll ask you a follow-up qu- question we'll send you another we'll ask, send up a follow-up questionnaire and we'll send you another voucher I was like oh great cool so i did the first half of this assessment and got i did the first half of the assessment essentially went home panicked over the weekend because i'd given them the wrong number of a marvel comics uh, thing when they were asking about my special interest, and I, gave, I said it was the Incredible Hulk 180 when it uh, Incredible Hulk 181 when it's the Incredible Hulk 180. Uh, had got a reference to it wrong and phoned them on the Monday, going, "I'm really sorry, I gave the wrong number," and like as if that would be the thing that they would go, <laughs> "No, you're not artistic." Um, to which know. they replied, "Do you want the voucher now?" Well, well, this yeah. was the thing because the voucher arrived three days before I actually got the diagnosis, and I was like, "Oh, brilliant!" So at least I know. <laughs> <laughs> this is the best way of finding out that you're autistic. Uh, this is the best way of finding out any information ever. Any medical diagnosis just send you a voucher along with it. <laughs> and and what did the what did the diagnosis mean to you? If it was something you were convinced of beforehand, if you knew beforehand, did the diagnosis have any meaning for you? Did it have any weight? Yeah, it did. It did because it suddenly meant that um, it allowed me to go. Oh, these things that I struggle with. All oh, right, okay. I can actually accept that they are things that I struggle with, and that I'm not just a bad person who's rubbish at things. Who, you know, on the one hand, it was great because it was like, ah, it doesn't matter how hard I try. I'm never always. I'm never going to be able to fully assess what other people's um, actions and intentions are, what other people's intentions are from the like the little micro uh, body language that we give off. On the other hand, it was like, oh, God, no matter how hard I try, I'm never going to be able to learn what other people's intentions are from the micro body language mm. that they give off. Um, it was it, it managed to do both of those things. It allowed me to go, ah, right, OK. It allowed me to give myself, um, allowed me to go easy on myself over a lot of things uh, mm. and also allowed me to go, right, OK, in which case I can lean into certain things, which really helps with comedy. Um, just going, ah, this is who I am and these are the things that there's no point in me trying to fight against this in terms of what I'm trying to create on stage. I might as well go with it. Um, yeah, it's just just on that. I think that's um, that experience, that that insight is probably also found by lots of other comedians in lots of other ways, not yeah. to do with neurodiversity. Yeah. The, the sense that actually I've learnt what I am yeah. And I can lean into it now. Yeah. That's probably a big part of... Had you had any experience in your comedy practice like that in a parallel way that wasn't to do with neurodiversity? Had you yeah. had you been through a moment of going, I've got to stop fighting and just be this? Yeah, I had. I did that with uh, talking about being gay on stage and to a lesser extent with being trans, which I still struggle with talking about on stage, which I will, I, which I'm doing more of now, which has been really helped by doing stuff online. That's really, really helped with that. Um, and it was the same thing when I realised that I had ADHD, which again, and I tell it as a joke, but it is absolutely true that my sister had got an ADHD diagnosis and said, I think you would really benefit from this. And I was like, whatever. She sent me the list of the symptoms and it, and it was like three pages long, the diagnostic criteria. And I just mm. looked at it and went, I'm not reading that. 
<laughs> that is too long for me to go and sit and read through just on the off chance. And it was it was about 18 months later when I did read through it. And just like by the time I'd got to the end of it, I was in tears because it was suddenly all of those things that I thought actually made me a bad person that didn't care about other people were all written down there. Every single one of them, all of the things that I'd beaten myself up over for my entire life. And I was like, yeah. and then I, and once I knew that, then I could really lean into that as well on stage. Um, I think with every new thing that I've learned about myself, it's been, cause also again, recovering addict, which again is often tied in with ADHD because a lot of it comes down to impulse control and then building up, um, OCD type, um, reactions to things that you get intrusive thoughts and you get um, an obsession that then becomes a compulsion that you have to do something and if you've got adhd then your um the limbic system which is the reptile part of the brain at the bottom of it doesn't properly uh, interact with your prefrontal cortex so you tend to do things impulsively because you can't associate the idea of dopamine with um, which is the chemical which gives you happiness which and you can't really sort of associate it with um, uh, deferred gratification delayed gratification so as a result of that you want whatever it is now quick 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 more and more and more of it and you can't your brain actually just can't go and separate those two things out so addiction then becomes a thing which happens quite often with people with ADHD um and given, obviously, there's there's a lot of things going on here, yeah, and I'll try yeah, yeah. and kind of like kind of buttonhole each one as we go. Just on that, with regard to addiction, which, what were you addicted to, and how did you get off it? Seeing as you are, as you said, with ADHD, you are particularly susceptible to that addiction. Did that? Did you have to? Uh, uh, did you have to take that into account when trying to break? The addiction. Uh, I didn't realise I had ADHD until a long time after I was clean and sober. Um, okay. And uh, yeah, and in terms of addiction, it was just taking anything that came across my path. So um, yeah. alcohol was my primary one, just because that's the one that goes and shuts up the little voice in your head that tells you that everything's wrong for about an hour, and then it comes back and screams at you. <laughs> so you have to drink more to try and drown it out. Um, and when I stopped drinking, I like really i took a lot of mdma and speed and cocaine and stuff like that which again these are ones which really well because the medication that they give you for adhd is essentially um it's it's amphetamine because it goes and allows those two parts of your brain to connect and to be able to do those things which seems odd when it's like if you're adhd then surely you're really speedy anyway so why would you need to go and put speed on top of that but all it does is it goes and allows them to connect. It was an interesting thing when I was sat in getting the ADHD diagnosis and they asked whether I'd taken any other drugs. And I went, oh yeah, I used to do cocaine quite a lot. And and they said, so what did cocaine do for you? And I went, it's really strange. It just sort of like gave me the confidence to shut up. And they went, sat there and started mm-hmm. taking notes. And I was like, huh. And at the end, they just said, yeah, that's a really good indicator that the medication that we can give you for this will really help because that's essentially what you were chasing. So a lot of it, it it turns out, was in some ways self-medicating, but overdoing for self-medication. Yes, okay, overdosing on the cure kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, kind of. Yeah, okay. Uh, Which is a a lot of what addiction is. A lot of what addiction is, is just trying to cope with the trauma of feeling wrong and then just doing whatever you can to try and erase that feeling. And and as someone who has felt wrong in the past and... uh, you've sort of 
your comedy, or certainly comedy is an opportunity for lots of people to kind of either to correct a wrong or to reappropriate a wrong mm. or a wrong feeling. Like yeah. I'm going to take the aspects of myself which I feel bad about, whether that's shame or guilt or yeah. anger or whatever those things, and actually A, express them and, and B, by expressing them, kind of be in charge of them, take the reins. Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely what I've tried to do it was it was so interesting um again last year because I'd uh, I had a really long intensive psychotherapy um not even session it was like it was six months of psychotherapy I did um and I say last year 2019 worked yep. really really hard on that because <laughs> uh, you know last year didn't exist um yeah. I'm gonna be 41 until I emerge from lockdown I have decided <laughs> upon that um yeah so like that in that, I realised I did a lot of thinking about what I do and how I react to things and realised how much of doing stand-up was a coping mechanism for me. Um, I think it's an interesting thing that I realised a couple of weeks ago that through talking about this on my Twitch stream and with with, uh, with another comedian, um, Susan Kalman, in fact, I was chatting with her and... Um, about it and saying like when I started doing stand-up it was almost a thing of I'll show those kids at school who were horrible to me I'll show them all whoa and like when you set off I think or at least in my experience I like I I wanted to be famous when I was a child because I wanted people to like me and then I became a comedian and I want I still wanted people to like me but I also wanted to impress those people who are horrible to me at, at school to make them see where they've gone wrong. I'll show them. Yeah. Um, and as I became popular as a comedian and as an actor, and I started to get fans, uh, which I hate that. I hate that idea. I, when I started to get people who like the work that I do, is it, that's, fans. They're called fans. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. They're called fans. Yeah, they're called fans. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I always feel like that goes and puts me like, oh yeah, my fans. Yeah, uh, sure. it, I hate. Yeah, it's that. The, the, the fact, the fact that you find it difficult to talk about, in my mind, is simply a marker of class. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, but yeah, to, like. I, I was really disappointed when I started to get fans that they weren't the kids that I wanted to impress at school. They were the kids that I was at school. Oh, that is an incredible insight. Yes. Okay. <laughs> if I laugh too hard at that, I betray something of my own experience. <laughs> and at first, I hated that. I it was because you know how like the things that we often hate about us about other people are the things that we see of ourselves in them. And I saw that. Oh yeah. I saw that in my fans and was like, "Well, this is not what I wanted at all." It was. It really was that almost Greek tragedy type of oh, a oh monkey's my... paw closing sort of <laughs> moment. <laughs> <laughs> oh God, my fans are all what? fucking nerds. <laughs> oh yeah, 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 yeah. I thought I would be. Are. I thought I would be cool. I'm speaking for you yeah, here, yeah, but yeah. you thought you you thought you would be cool and impress the cool kids that you could never impress. And then, or maybe the, what, the cool kids, the mean kids, the tough kids, yeah, the yeah, confident all of kids, those maybe? Kids, the confident kids, the yeah. kids, yeah. The kids who. Is it, which, which were the ones you most wanted to impress out of all of those? Like cool, confident, which, what aspect, popular? I think it was. What the, aspect was it you were chasing? I think it was the popular, um, confident kids, not the cool kids, because I had quite a few of the cool kids as my friends. I was, I was one of those, I was a, a kind of an outsider kid at school because even though I had all of this stuff going on where I could just 
ace any exam without really having to try. I, I was like, mm. it, I was like that weird outsider kid that you get in 1980s movies who was all dressed in black, but could just turn up and do whatever it was. I was that kid that you'd see in those movies, that archetype okay. who would turn up and pass every exam, but would be Got also it. be out there smoking and drinking behind the bike sheds. And, <laughs> and that. Um, but there were always that, there was always that sort of like, I don't even know how you describe I think the term that they use on, on the internet is basic people. Like It was just like people who were going to be happy with how their lives turned out. The people who were just neither going to be super cool nor super dorky, but seemed to be confident in themselves and confident with where their lives were going. And we're going to go off and do, we're going to go off and have nine to five jobs and, and families and houses and all of those things that are just sort of like the middle Englanders. I think that was who I was trying to impress at school, thinking about it. I've never yes. really thought about it, but just looking at it and going, yeah, those people who were just, who didn't seem to be troubled by, <laughs> didn't seem to be troubled by existential thoughts. <laughs> the, the kids and people, who, people arguably who represented the norm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. People who I thought of as normal and to whom I felt very much sort of um, opposed to, very much, you know, that my reflection was against it. And it was that thing of realising, I think partly because I realised um, especially when I went to secondary school, that in spite of being the smartest kid in school and in spite of being able to do any of these things, um, that I wasn't popular with, in the way that uh, a kid who I went to school with who became both a head boy and sports captain was <laughs> like the only person who'd ever done that who like was ridiculously good looking who everybody just like all of the teachers just sort of treated as a peer and who like left school and i think now he works for deloitte in london like he, yeah. one of the only people from my little tiny town who went off to go to london and ended up working for an international big five um accountancy firm and I think that was what I was trying to impress. Yeah, yeah, a, winner. A normal, Everything in life. A normal winner. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And yeah, yeah. It was him. I think it was entirely down to trying to impress the woman. That was his name. <laughs> <laughs> and and it runs to LinkedIn. Um, and yeah. uh, he was nice though. He was a nice guy, and like we got on well enough at school. It wasn't like I. It wasn't like I really desperately. But it was just like everything that he represented. I was like, that's. I think that's kind of the life that I want. I think that's the yeah. life that I want because you could see straight away that he was going to be someone who was going to win at absolutely everything, um, and that and was so, kind of what I wanted. And so the popularity that you sought was that people it was an element of it that people would regard you as a popular winner, not yeah. simply that you'd win the appreciation of this per this particular yeah. person. Yeah, because I think yeah, I have yeah. to beep out. Yeah, yeah. But um, <laughs> um, but. But it, not just that you'd impress him, but that also people would look at you as if you were a kind of bastion of normal winnerness. Absolutely. That yeah, that own. was it. That was that was what I wanted. I wanted to be sort of like that pinnacle of that everyone liked, who was nice, who didn't have any of my faults, who didn't have any of the awful things. So talk to me then about the difference between your audience regarding you as a i mean maybe your audience regard you as a bastion of their flavor of normality and is that good enough for you yeah they do and now it is yeah when it when i start it wasn't but and, it, and i, I I'm, I'm, so, yeah and, i'm, I'm and, so glad i'm so glad because no would be a terrible answer yeah, at this no, point no, no. <laughs> no i hate my i hate my fans they're assholes i hate all of them no 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 i love them no i really really do and i really appreciate it and the thing that i've discovered with doing the twitch streams is that i now have a community cult community yeah. call it what you will yeah, yeah. um oh yeah 
<laughs> but I do. I have a community. I have a Discord server where they I, I that I occasionally pop into to tell them about whatever's going on in the show, and I see them all talking to each other and being really supportive and being really lovely to each other. And they are exactly the sort of community that I always wanted, and they're the exact sort of people I always want to think that I am trying to be. And yeah. they are because those are the people that I've attracted because you attract back what you put out into the world. And I think that's the thing that I learned from watching comedians that I really, really loved whose audiences I absolutely despised. Mm-hmm. There are certain comedians who I know who are who I absolutely adore what they do, whether it's like dirty or whether it's like true stories that go and paint them in in, in not a great light or if they do shocking material or any of those sorts of things that they do. And I love them. And I can't go and watch them live because their audience, I find, has such a threatening mood hanging over them <laughs> mm. that it's just like, ah, yeah, whilst I would probably like to be able to do that sort of material in the way that they do it, I really wouldn't like that to be my audience because I really don't feel a connection with it. Do you Do you think that you are enjoying the work of those comics differently to their audience? Or what is it that you can... Because one might imagine if the work is attracting a particular kind of audience, the, the, my, my uh, assumption, I suppose, would be that the work would not attract you. Is it that you as a comic kind of appreciate the craft of the work in it or a sort of you can appreciate it amorally and say, I like what you did there, but you feel the audience are appreciating it in a way whereby they're missing a subtlety or something like that? Or, or is it something else? I think, no, I think you're right there. And I think, and that sounds awful to do that, but I think it's from being a comedian. And when I started out, I was one of those comics who completely, I, like, because I've painted myself into a corner as I've got older with my stand-up which is a really interesting thing that I've learned, especially since uh, everything has sort of stopped in the last year and knowing that when I am allowed to get back out on stage, that what I'm going to be doing is going to be different because I've now written a different style and I'm and I'm moving more towards that and I'm moving more towards the stuff that I do in my hour-long shows, which is very different from what I would do as part of a 20-minute set. Um, and when I started out, I was one of those comedians who absolutely confused being offensive with being funny. And didn't realise that there also needed to be the joke. Well, knew that there needed to be the joke in there, but assumed that the shocking bit was the funny bit, and it isn't. And so those sorts of comedians, when I started out, were the comedians that I went, I absolutely love these these comics. I love to go and watch these comics. I love to go and... Uh, I liked that sort of stuff. Because I, I grew up... Um, Massive comedy note, but like throughout the 90s on Channel 4, late at night, they would show stand-up specials like Bill Hicks and Dennis Leary and all of those things. And they'd have Just for Laughs. They would show that on Channel 4 every year. And then uh, during the Edinburgh Fringe, they'd go and show like, they'd have like shows uh, throughout the last week of that showing all of the people who were up and coming. I remember seeing Jason John Whitehead on one of those for the first time in like 1999, um, uh, doing uh, some stuff at the Edinburgh Fringe back when he had the big dreadlocks and everything. Um, <laughs> I'd forgotten about the dreadlocks. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, seeing him and that was the same year that Ross Noble sort of broke through at the Edinburgh Fringe and watching these comics and going these are the, the seeing the stuff that was sort of coming through throughout that time and going this is something that I would really like to do but didn't think I'd be able to um, and it was particularly sort of the Bill Hicks Dennis Leary um, and then from that through to people like Doug Stanhope and um, and then in the UK, like Jim Jeffries and, and Frankie Boyle, when they were on the UK circuit. 
and watching those guys and going, this is the sort of stuff that I really like and stuff that I'd like to be able to do. And to an extent, I think my stand-up did kind of follow that. But then to go, ah, actually, as I grew older and learnt empathy a lot better <laughs> and learnt and going, actually, no, I don't, I don't want to have to, I don't want to have to keep justifying saying things that aren't nice. And I kind of want to move away from that. And so my stuff just ended up becoming dirtier and dirtier and became more sexual content, which isn't what, like, because if I went to go and see me do stand, this is, because this is the strange thing, even though I love my fans and even though my fans have followed me because of what I do and they like me because of what I do, I don't think that they particularly, the ones who are sort of like, that I know that I'll be able to, um, who I know will stick with me until I decide that I want to stop doing this. Um, I'm not entirely sure that they're a big fan of the the filth side of things. They'd like it occasionally in little sporadic bits, but not as much as I tend to do when I'm doing a club set. Because um, I know that if I went to watch me do stand-up, if I was sat in an audience watching me do stand-up, I would go, oh, no, that's not to my taste. Um, <laughs> I've kind of okay. painted myself into a corner with that in that I know that that's what gets, into, in that I know that that's something that I've got really, really good at because I know how to figure out exactly what the worst possible thing is, but say it in a way that with a smile and in a way that goes and drags people along. So it's just me being cheeky and me taking them out of their comfort zone and then bringing them back into their comfort zone with something else. So I can talk about certain things and I can go bang and then I can go and add an extra little topper and a little topper and each of the little toppers that I go and do. So like I've got a fisting joke that has like that started off as a single joke about that. And it's now a five minute bit and it has something like eight or nine toppers. And each one of them just takes you a little bit further out before then bringing you back in. So this is Beth, really enjoying this. Apologies for the the crummy quality of my audio on this episode. As uh, you may hear me say on the episode, I uh, had to evacuate the house and uh, and was recording most of it uh, in a van. And then if at the end of the episode the audio gets slightly better, that's because I had retired to my studio indoors. And if the audio gets worse, that's because Nathan's done an incredible job of cleaning up the van audio. What fun it is to have a little camper van that you can pull the curtains around such that when you're recording in the back of it, you don't get funny looks from people passing by. Um, There is a moment coming up towards the uh, whereabouts. I'll tell you exactly where it is. Um, It's in the last, it's about 10 minutes before the end of this episode, um, where Bethany, basically my connection, failed just as Beth was talking about coming home to a green room and uh, the uh, without giving anything away but we'll talk about green rooms and there is a really interesting and very poignant uh, insight that she offers us from that situation and I don't respond to it because by that time my connection had failed just at an incredibly beautiful heartfelt moment so uh, we'll just pop a I'll just get Nathan to pop a little sting in there um, get in touch with me in all the usual places info at comedianscomedian.com you can also oh god you can use the contact form on my website but if you've done that in the last two years a thousand apologies because it's been going directly to a spam filter which deletes things every month so i was able to get back to two people from that and everyone else please don't think me rude if you have used the uh the uh, contact form on the website comedianscomedian.com i'm sorry it's been lost if you're thinking that i'm this absolute prick and you're only listening under sufferance because i never replied to your email it may be because it's in there because i make a point of replying to absolutely everything so with that in mind, uh, at ComComPod, info at comedianscomedian.com. And here are the places you can get in touch with Bethany. You can follow her on Twitter at Bethany Black, B-E-F-F-E-R-N-I-E, Black. 
Bethany Black. Um, and you can also go to the same address on Twitch, twitch.tv slash Bethany Black with two Fs. So... Uh, and do follow her on Twitter as well. She's very, very funny and very kind of meaningful and interesting and does Twitter properly um, in a way that uh, I can only dream of. <laughs> like it's considered and thought out and funny and uh, meaningful and stuff. You know, a good Twitter feed. So get cracking on that. Here's more from Bethany now. No insider's content this time. Uh, it is all here for you for free. But um, if you are enjoying the show and would like to become an insider, there has never been a better time. Comedianscomedian.com slash insiders. Let's get back to Bethany Black. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. the balls that we have in the air at the moment in my mind are you love certain comics but you you would feel kind of hostility from their audience so their appreciation of the material is maybe different to yours and yet also there's this kind of parallel track of you thinking that if you were sat in the audience of your own show you'd think it was a bit much and i think there's got to be some relationship between those two concepts yeah i think it's that i've grown up I think it's that as I've grown up, I've changed and my um, my tastes have changed. But, and this is the thing that I think is the absolute key to this, is that because I spent so long learning how to become a stand-up comedian, because when I started off, there's that thing of like when you go out in front of an audience, they know what they, when your name's announced, right, they create an image of you in your, in their head. I mean, they've already got an image of what a comedian's going to look like anyway. Um, and they create an image in your head based on your name. And then you walk out and they see you. And however far you deviate from what the image is in their head is how much harder you kind of have to work to get them to win them over and to keep them on site. And the more things that you add, which go and take you away from that, the more difficult it is. And not just with audiences, but also with promoters, because a lot of promoters tend to book based on people who are like them, people who are to their taste rather than my audience will like. They go, they say, my audience will like this, but a lot of the time it's, I like these comedians, so I want comedians who look and sound and talk about the same things that I do. You absolutely never hear a promoter say, well, I can't stand this act, but my audience love him. <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely, absolutely, every single time. Um, yeah, and so for a long time it was difficult for me to get enough stage time Partly because when I started off, the stuff that I felt that I wanted to talk about was more difficult for me to figure out how to be able to make it palatable to an audience. I've said, you know, difficult for me to get away with, but which is kind of true. But it is it's difficult. Some of the stuff that I talk about has been difficult to make palatable for an audience, which has meant that it's a little yeah. bit more risky, which has meant that I've died 
a little bit uh, uh, meant that I died more times than a lot of other comics when I was just starting out. But it also, because I stuck in the mind of both the audience and the promoters, it meant that they were less likely to rebook me. So it took me a longer time to get to the point where I had enough work as a comedian to be able to like relax into being on stage um, at the bigger weekend gigs and be able to go, right, okay, I'm just going to mess around with this. Like I started doing jonglers at the point at which they'd stopped paying people mostly. And I was uh, one of the last okay. people who were yeah. still regularly getting paid because I'd done a bunch of tryouts for them when I was brand new. Um, and it had gone, it had gone badly enough that they didn't book me back for another 10 years. And so by the time they booked me back, they could no longer get comedians who were of the quality that they were used to. But in the intervening okay. time, I had become of the quality that they were used to. And I could go out <laughs> into any of those rooms okay. and I could sure, okay, sure. and I could turn around any audience. I could walk out into like I ended up doing uh, Portsmouth Jonglers three, uh, four weekends in a row emceeing. Um, <laughs> and... Uh, and I just did, I did gigs for them every single weekend. And that Portsmouth Jonglers gig is the worst gig that has ever been run at that level. And it taught me so much. <laughs> That's beautifully specific. I don't yeah. disagree. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it, absolutely. It was an aircraft hangar of a venue with really loud AC and just everything about it was set up wrong. It was awful. And people who were in there had all been on, there were stag parties who'd all like paid group on prices. So they had absolutely no commitment to the night going well at all. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I spent an entire year just going around and troubleshooting those really shitty jonglers gigs as they were, as they'd stopped paying people because they were still paying me. Yeah. And they seemed to have stopped paying everyone else. Um, and from doing that, suddenly off the back of that, whenever I got called up to do any of the other sort of like gigs that would be able to there, therefore then be able to allow me to get paid weekend work, suddenly I was able to do that. And I was doing a lot of that. Um, and every gig that I got brought into, they were like, you are a lot better than we remember and a lot better than we expected. And so suddenly mm. I had this like full complement of of work in my diary, which I'd never had up until that point. I'd really struggled because a lot of the time I would turn up and pe- and it would be like I, I and even if I didn't struggle, people had such a bad idea of who I was. I remember doing the Frog and Bucket um which I now close, which is like getting booked in to close the frog and bucket was one of my absolutely like, yeah, you know, bucket list, pun intended. But um, yeah, and because when I started out, I remember my first gig there doing Beat the Frog and walking off the wrong side of the stage and banging my head and and having such a rush of anxiety about being on that stage anyway, because I was up there going, this is where Peter Kay played and this is where Johnny Vegas played and this is one of the gigs yeah. where Carolina Hearn used to hang out. And I had all of those, all of, I was such a, I grew up such a comedy nerd and never thought I'd be able to do it. And to be able to go in and do those gigs, my last gig before the pandemic, shut everything down was uh the late show at the comedy store on the saturday night and i was like if that's got to be my last ever gig then that is a great last ever gig to do you know you reach the top yeah um yeah (laughs) absolutely just just on that why did that did the specter of if that's the last gig i ever do is that just bigging up what how meaningful that was or is the specter of that maybe having been the last gig you'll do is that floating around I think it's both. I think when I when I was driving home that night, I was like, huh, if that is the last gig I ever do. Because I, I was driving home and I haven't left the house since. That was the 16th of March, uh, 2020. And I've you left, haven't left the house? Well, I've left the house 
three times. Once to get my teeth fixed, because I accidentally bit into a fork. Um, which is the perfect thing you want to do during the middle of lockdown. And then have a dentist go, don't bite into a fork. I was like, oh yeah, really? I did it on purpose, did I? Because this was my idea of a good day out. Check yourself. Um, and the other two times, once I had to go to the pharmacy and once I had to take my partner to the hospital for, um, okay. for an appointment because we've both got, we're both like immunocompromised. So we're, yes. we're living in danger. Um, so we've not left the house since March. Um, we've been shielding since March. Um, oh God. and, but yeah, do you know, now that, I mean, about a month in to not leaving the house, I was like, yeah, that probably is going to be the last, I'm not going to go back and do stand up when I can do, I'll, I'll, I'll concentrate. Cause I, at the time I'd already, I've been pushing myself too hard and doing too many gigs and being on the road too much for about three or four years. Um, and just really starting to feel it now that I'm in my forties and starting to notice that, you know, I don't have anywhere near the energy I used to have. I can't finish a gig in Exeter at 11 and then drive up to the middle of Lancashire and get in yeah. at four o'clock in the morning and then yeah. still have a following day that works. Sure. You know, it takes me two or three days to recover from that. And, and the amount of days that I could commit to going out and gigging and being on the road was getting smaller and smaller. And the times that I was away doing weekend gigs, I was, if I, when I wasn't on stage, I, I was in the hotel room because otherwise I'd end up just wearing myself out too much and then losing yeah. other time. So I was, I'd already committed in 2020 to do, to spend less time on the road and spend more time writing and writing for TV and, and, and things. And so I've done that. <laughs> the yeah. world took care of that for me. Um, and I think about, I think by about June or July, I was like, do you know what? I don't think I'm ever going to go back and do stand up again. I've loved it and it has been the best experience of my life. And, you know, uh, in those moments when you go, oh, I've never achieved anything. And then my partner would go, what are you talking about? You've never achieved anything. You, you're a regular at the comedy store. You headlined the Frog and Bucket. Both of those are things you wanted to do. You've played Glastonbury. You were in Doctor Who. You were a main character in a Russell T Davies series. Yeah. Uh, you've, uh, you know, you've done all of these things. You've done everything that you ever wanted. All of your, all of the things that you ever set out to do when you, all of your like lifelong ambitions you've achieved. What are you talking about? You've never achieved anything. And I was like, oh yeah, yeah. It gets harder, doesn't it? Or does it? Does it get harder to convince yourself that you're the piece of shit you worried you might be? Yeah. My word's not yours. Does it get harder <laughs> to convince yourself, oneself, um, when when the evidence racks up? Or does one tend to discount the evidence? You tend to discount the evidence because you forget about it. Because like, you, you have these goals and then once you've achieved them, then they're just stuff that you've done. You know I, I mean? realised that. I realised something like that some time ago, maybe last year. I was thinking about what it must be like to be a movie icon, not just a star, but an icon, yeah. someone who's done everything. You know, uh, you know, Malkovich or someone like that. Yeah. Someone who's like done just countless interesting, brilliant, fun projects. Yeah. Um, and I was thinking. But the thing is, those projects, as soon as you complete them, they're in the past. Yeah. And the fact, I think it was because I read an interview with someone, they were talking about the fact they never watched their movies back. Yeah. And I thought, oh, yeah, you don't sit around. You're not a film fan in the same way that film fans are film fans. You have the exciting adventure of being in, for some reason, I'm going to say, in the line of fire. Yeah. Just because <laughs> it's a I great can really film. see. 
I can really see Malkovich testing his plastic gun on that passerby. You know, fantastic yeah. scene. Um, but once you've done that, you've had the experience of doing your half of it, which isn't, or your part of it, which isn't by any means the same as being an assassin. It's it's doing a load of things and living in a caravan for a bit. Um, but then it's over and it's simply a part of your past and then it's on to the next challenge. And so I was, yeah, I was thinking about that in terms of like, what is their concrete to which we can really hang on and say, I did that. I think that's why... I think that's why awards become a thing. <laughs> because yeah, maybe. maybe. Because then it's something concrete to go, you see, everybody did like me. I did reach the top. I did reach the top of what it was I was wanting to do. Um, it's like of all of the things, like in my head now, when I started off, like my my goal with stand-up was when I, because I got asked to do, um, I got asked to host a, a like a cabaret night type thing. Mm. And I went, oh yeah, I can do that. And so I went and wrote like an, a, an hour and a half, two hours of stand-up for that. Because <laughs> I thought that's what you're supposed to do. <laughs> and I went and did it and only one joke got a laugh. But the one that got a laugh gave me such a rush and made me go, huh, I could actually do this. I could be a stand-up yeah. comedian. Um, So my goal then was to go from that to doing my first gig at a proper comedy club to then getting a gig at the weekend. Like my, my, like, how I saw my career panning out at that point would be, okay, I can do this, right? Find a comedy club where I can go and phone them up and book and get booked in to do a gig, which I will do. And I will come off stage and someone will say, would you like to do the comedy store in London? And I'll go, yes, please. And I'll go and mm. do the comedy store in London and I'll come off stage and somebody with a big cigar will come up to me and go, I don't know what it is, kid, but you've got it. You want, you want... <laughs> and they'll hand you the rich and famous contract. <laughs> yeah, they'll hand me the rich and famous contract and I'll have my own TV show on Channel 4 the following week. And in spite of the fact that that breaks the rules the following year i would go up to the edinburgh fringe and perform a sellout run that would then mean that i'd have to get moved to a bigger venue at the beginning of week two and would end it by winning the best newcomer and then yeah. everybody who'd been horrible to me throughout my time when i was growing up all of the bullies would go oh actually no you were right can we be friends again and i'd say no um <laughs> whilst i headed off to hollywood to become like as big as richard Pryor. um that was that was my career goal obviously that's changed uh but like of all of the things i've ever done i think still the thing that i like going back to the fringe um getting nominated for one of the big prizes that's like the only thing out of all of those things that i didn't do that i would have yeah. loved to have done which also i still don't think is out. i think i'm fortunately not famous enough is the it's my favorite phrase uh because i did the chase and i did the the regular chase rather than the celebrity chase because when i did the audition at the end of it they said you were really really good but you might be too famous to go on the <laughs> on the regular chase we might have to put you on the on the um on the celebrity chase and i went oh, oh what stools what stools to fall between i know and i was like oh great oh no no and then two days later they phoned me up and they went it's good news you're not famous enough you can be on the regular chase so uh yeah so i did that um but yeah just thinking about that and it's like of all of the things yeah, so I, I still think I'm not quite famous enough to be uh, excluded from from potentially being nominated for the main prize at the Edinburgh Fringe. Yeah, um, and I still sort of like I think that is like the only the only stand up career goal that I still have. Yes, <laughs> really. Um, so anything that's not aiming towards that kind of feels like treading water. Um, with with re with regard to that that story that you said, which I think will resonate with a lot of people, you know, the bullies will ask if they can be my friends now, and I'll say no. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's very raw shark, you know. Yeah, it is, yeah. Um, uh, <laughs> I think that will resonate with a lot of people. But in, in terms of like the the kind of 
like there's that that journey mapped out and you as a person on that journey you display uh, as comics do an amount of vulnerability and i want to talk to you about what vulnerability you display because i think it's a part of why you attract the fan base that you attract and we talked about them and you know the, maybe you've you're a hero to the to the people who once upon a time you didn't want to be a hero to them because you were one of them like that hero didn't mean as much to you yeah um do you think that let's start there do you think that your vulnerability your openness about your various conditions say or your openness yeah. about your feelings is part of what's attractive oh absolutely absolutely i think when i was first when I first wrote my first Edinburgh show, Beth Becomes Her, which detailed my uh, coming out as trans to my family and transition and everything that I went through. Mm -hmm. um, it was the summer before I did that. I just set up a new gig and I'd started, there was someone who um, I was chatting with, someone who helped me to set the gig up, who we were kind of, we were clearly flirting with each other. We were clearly, there was something there, there was a spark there. And we'd gone off and we'd sat in a coffee shop and we were talking about setting up this gig, um, but there was like there was definite subtext there, <laughs> and we just started talking about our lives. And I ended up telling her the story because it just sort of came up. Sorry, my cat has jumped on my lap, so if you can hear a purring, that's what that is. <laughs> um, we ended up telling a story about a failed suicide attempt, which obviously you know doesn't sound like a great date story. Yeah, but it kind of it was t just talking about and uh, we were talking about the various different things that we'd been through and and but in a fun way uh, and this kind of came up and it's a really it was a funny story which was which is one of the stories from the start of me doing Beth becomes her and it's a true story which has since then uh, been done as a fake gag on the second Anchorman movie, um, <laughs> <laughs> um and because it, it was the story about how I'd like I'd reached rock bottom and didn't think that. If I came out as trans, that I would, I thought I'd lose my family and I thought I'd lose my friends and I couldn't face anything else. And I felt like I'd become such a massive failure um, that I went to hang myself and I tied my dressing gown cord around the light fitting and stepped off a chair and then dragged the entire ceiling down. And and that was kind of and I the way that I told it, it was. Because you know sometimes when you tell the stories that are really emotional, really personal, that you can do it in a way with a flourish and with with the way that you're telling them that they become hilarious and they become funny. And that's what had happened in this. And afterwards, I was chatting with two of my friends. Um, comedian Michael J. Dolan was one of them. Uh, and told them this story. And told them the story about, you know, doing that and thinking, you know, as I hung there, I should probably have done this before I put on six stones through comfort eating. But just before I... <laughs> dragged the ceiling light down um and he went do you tell that story on stage and i went oh god no no and he went you should do because you know that's where the art lives and that has been sort of like my guiding principle since then is the find the story that you would never normally even tell your best friend the thing that you're embarrassed about the thing that you think that people will judge you harshly for yeah and tell that story to a group of strangers because that is where art is because art that that's absolutely where the art of what you're saying lies that's where your connection will be because you can go out and you can tell one-liner jokes uh, all day and i absolutely adore one-liner comedians i i wish i could do what they do and i can't and i remember chatting with gary delaney and going i wish i could come up with jokes like yours he said i wish i could do stories mm. um but i can't um and 
I, you know, I love those guys and I love what they do, which always makes it sound like I'm just being an asshole. <laughs> but, but you know, you come away from watching them and you don't get any more takeaway than you brought with you. Uh, but no, it's it's that thing of like watching them do that. It is it is art and it's in a very different way. But the sort of stuff that I feel like I've managed to make a connection with people, the sort of connection that lasts, the sort of connection that makes people go, I'm not alone. Yeah, is in t- sharing something that you think you're the only person who says. Um, and does that does that cost you something? Because I hear I've I've heard that idea expressed in different ways before. It's come up on the podcast before the idea that it that it's that you you think of something that you would never tell anyone. And yeah. of course, anyone listening to this is going to think of something that they would never tell anyone. And then the vast majority of people are going to think, "Oh Christ, not that!" Like, do you know what I mean? That yeah. that's the thing to be able to really to really kind of get into the guts of the thing you would never say. The reason you would never say it is because it makes you terrifically vulnerable that people might say, oh God, what, really? You really think like that? Or even if it goes on to become your best bit, the first time or one time you say it, it gets nothing and they stare at you aghast. Yeah. What what did it cost you as someone who, certainly on, you know, if, if this episode is people's first experience of you, you sound like you would say anything about yourself. Yeah, I do. And I have shared so many things and it has cost me so much um it's it's cost an awful lot um but yeah just in in terms of my mental health as well as on top of everything else it has i've i've paid a price for it um part of um i mean right it's a complicated thing to get into and i'm happy to get into it here and i'm 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 you know proud that i can do um Right. Where to begin? <laughs> um, yeah. I ended up a couple of weeks ago having to tell my mum to stop telling me to go out of the house because it'll do me good, in her words. Uh, go out for a walk, it'll do you good. And for the 18th time since lockdown began, I had to explain to her what agoraphobia is. Uh, and she said, well, why? You used to be someone who was able to go out and put yourself out there and you say all of these things that you say on stage and you do all of these things that you do and you're able to go out and fight all of these fights. Why are you scared of leaving your house and going to the shops or leaving your house and going out for a walk? And uh, I ended up having to say to her, because I did all of those things. Um, sometimes the sharing is good, sometimes it's not as great sometimes you find sometimes i found myself telling stories because i felt like i needed to tell them because i felt like i needed to be pure to that principle to that artistic principle and instead of providing catharsis or instead of having experienced these things and moved through them and been in a place where i could talk about them in a healthy way that was healing to me, but also funny to an audience. They just became re-traumatizing. And they put me repeatedly in situations where I felt like I had been too vulnerable, where I felt like I'd shared too much of myself, where I felt like I would... Whenever I put myself forward for in, in any of these things, that it would come back and bite me. I mean, my first two Edinburgh shows, the first one went great. And I got some really good reviews and I got a couple of really terrible reviews. I got one from the list, which I can remember almost word for word. That was, you would assume that, because it was, again, it was a really personal story about my transition, about suicide attempts, about everything that had gone wrong, about how shitty my life had to be before I came out as trans to my family. 
about how far it had pushed me. And then it ended with me. Uh, the, the story ended on a high note about how I realised that I was good enough and that I that um, I was worthy of being loved. And my partner at the time proposed to me during the fringe that that year, and that became that in, in the second half of the the fringe that kind of became the ending of the story. Mm-hmm. That sort of showed that I had managed to get through this thing. And the one of the reviews that I got just. It it wasn't even particularly long, and it just said, you would assume that Bethany Black would have had some interesting stories to tell, but she chose not to tell them, instead of, instead focusing on all of the positives. Okay. Um, and that was like, that knocked my confidence, because that was someone who'd gone and taken something that was deeply personal to me, and something that I, as a kid, constantly, because of the way that I just remember everything and talk about everything, Constantly being told that I was boring. That's one of the things that, like, really, really, that really hurt to a, on, on that level. But it also stuck with me throughout the, the thing that it was like, I'm trying to create my own narrative. I'm trying to tell this thing and they're saying, ah, well, yeah, we want tragedy. We, we aren't ready for you to be telling a positive story about this aspect of your life. This is what we want. And the next year I followed it up and it was supposed to be a show about how some of the most ridiculous decisions I've ever made have been as a result of either being in love or being drunk. And um, in the April of that year was when I realised that I was a drug addict and an alcoholic. And so between April and August, I essentially wrote a show about realising that. And one of the things that happens when you get clean and sober is that for the first 18 months to two years, you're fucking insane. Because... You're suddenly not having the things that you've used to cope with all of the horrible shit that's been going on in your head and in your life for all of these years. And suddenly you have to try and come to terms with a lot of that. And you're having all of the emotions that you'd suppressed and, and haven't dealt with throughout the entirety of the time that you were active in addiction and, and drug taking and alcoholism. Um, and I did a show and it, I, it wasn't quite ready to go to the fringe and I took it to the fringe and I, I think it was like the first Saturday of the run, uh, a whole bunch. It was quite a delicate show about, about realizing that you're an addict. And like, um, on the first Saturday of the run, Spank had sold out downstairs. And so I ended up with all of their overflow who just absolutely fucking destroyed the show. Like just, mm. there were three guys in there who dropped acid who just like, behaving so badly and just completely broke what the show was supposed to be and I got loads and loads of really bad reviews that year and that stopped me from going back to do the fringe until 2016 so that was like 2009 to 2016 so it was seven years I didn't do the fringe because of the experience that I had then Mm -hmm. um and once that had happened then every single day doing that show I was performing to between I think I performed to two people on one night doing that show and both of them were reviewers that was a weird one (laughs) Um, and every single day going in to do that show at 11 PM and it became more like doing a nine to five job than doing a nine to five job ever was because I was being brutally honest about myself and I was sharing this information and sharing the show to an audience that wasn't there particularly. It was costing me money I couldn't afford and the reviewers just seemed to pick on me in the same way that the popular kids that I'd hated at school seemed to pick on me. That's what it felt like. Yeah. Um, 
And so instead of being cathartic or a show that could then grow and develop over that time, it just became a show that kept re-traumatizing me <laughs> about these things. So that was a that was a really, really difficult thing to sort of get past. So when I went back in 2016 and did did my fringe show, um, which that show was about how I'd gone from having the worst couple of years from like 2012 where just like one person after another in my life died. Um, I broke my leg. I got made homeless. I had all sorts of horrible stuff just happening like day after day after day. It was like everyone else's 2016 to 2020. I had that from, uh, <laughs> I had that from like 2011 to 2016. Uh, and then I had everyone else's 2016 to 2020 to deal with on top of that. So I was already, at least I was prepared for the last five years. Um, uh, and so when I went back and did that, I really made a conscious decision that I wasn't going to read any reviews. Um, partly because Mark Watson had said, like, don't bother reading reviews because if they're good, they don't help. And if they're bad, they don't help. And yeah. I went further than that and just really using the degree that I'd had in cultural studies and, and uh, film and television, just looked at what the role of a critic was and just went, well, yeah, a critic isn't actually doing isn't criticizing anything they're not when they give you a review they call it a review and it's supposed to be all oh, right this is we we deal with reviews almost as if they're some sort of objective idea of whether or not something is good based on a set of criteria when it isn't sure. what what reviews are is somebody writing down their reaction to a piece of art yeah and if it's a bad review it's not a bad review it's not a it doesn't mean your work is bad and it's not a bad review of your work what that is is it's is it is someone writing down that they didn't make the connection and that they didn't understand the work? It's their failing. Yeah, if they were called, if they were called the opinions, that yeah. would change. Oh, how are the how are the opinions? Oh, I had a good opinion the other day. Yeah. Do you know what I mean that's really? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Oh, sure. Nice. Yeah, I think that would make I had a it house much better. Of good opinions last night. Yeah. yeah, and it's that thing of like, yeah, if reviewers really don't understand the work, like it's more power to them being so confident to be so wrong. In public, oh, because <laughs> going, oh yeah, do you know oh. what? I didn't understand that. <laughs> oh, oh really? Yeah, uh, one star uh, for me. Um, are there other ways? Are there other ways? Obviously, that you're talking about the cost, the, the the high price you sort of pay there for for the for exposing yourself in that yeah. way, for talking about the things. Presumably, there is also a benefit there that you do attract an audience. It can sometimes be cathartic. It can relate to people. You presumably get the sensation oh, yeah, that 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 your that you exposing yourself has helped someone else come to terms with you know their diagnosis of some neurodiversity or their life experience in some yeah, way. Yeah, I mean, one of the best the thing that one of the, one thing that made me like cry after that first Edinburgh Fringe, um, I got a I got a message and it was, it was MySpace so it date shows what the date was but I got a MySpace message from somebody who'd been to see the show who had said that they had to get in touch with me they'd ended up getting the tickets to see my show last minute um and they had no idea what it was and they sat down and they were about to walk out at the 10 minute mark when they realized that it was the story of me being trans and coming out and coming to terms with that but they didn't. They sat there and they sat through it and they wanted to thank me so much that they were in tears at the end of it and that they thought it was absolutely wonderful. And to say thank you so much because we had, I had disowned my child when they came out as trans. Um, oh, goodness. And it was watching your show and feeling like, and, and sitting there 
and forcing myself to confront that that made me realize how wrong I'd been. Um, so if I've done literally nothing else in my career, that's enough. That's enough. That is enough for any of those, for any of the, sorry, I'm going to cry and I don't want to because it just feels ridiculous. Um, yeah, for any of the horrible things that have happened or any of the shitty things or any of the prices that I've paid for any of the things that I've done or any of the things that I've said, um, on a personal level, the fact that if I can go out, when I go out there and I tell the truth in the way that I do, and when I go and share my experience, my perspective, I only know about that one because that's someone who told me. And I know that other people have got in touch and years and years later and said, I saw you talk about this and I didn't realise. And from realising that I have become a better person or I've gone away and I've done these things or like I didn't realize that I was autistic and it was listening to you talking about it and now I feel better about about that I didn't realize I had ADHD and it's allowed me to get away from all of the shame that I had in relation to that does Um, that that must be incredibly motivating to hear that what a thing to hear from people that you you can affect huge huge kind of realization sort of self-actualization sort of stuff that you can you can act as a, a catalyst for that is that ever is it ever demotivating is it ever a, does it ever feel like a burden do you ever sort of think oh god yeah oh god if i've done that for someone <laughs> i've got to keep doing it now yeah it does it, it does it kind of it's yeah because on the one hand it is beautiful and it's wonderful and it's great to hear these things and it's so nice to hear back from that and you know and i have i have people who uh, have discovered like one of the recent things somebody got in touch with me to say that since they'd spoken to me they realized that they had adhd and they managed to get um they'd managed to get a diagnosis and they'd managed to get medication for it and it's been life-changing for them and it's so their life is so much better and i was like that's fantastic and then about two months later they said i just thought i should let you know from me discovering this four other people have realized the this and have gone off <laughs> and i'm like all oh, right okay and it's like it's it's yeah and it's like the chain reaction i mean because I, I remember one of the most one of the most important comedy memories for me live comedy memories was uh brendan burns in 2000 and th- 2004 maybe 2005 uh glastonbury the year that he did the magic mushrooms it was brendan versus burnsy part two and he arrived at man at it was the year that it would have been 2005 because it was the year that mushrooms were made illegal in the UK, magic mushrooms. And the entire tent got high on magic mushrooms because him and Paul Provenza and I think Janie Godley <laughs> drove them in in a minibus and managed to get them past security because they were like, it's like, hang on, we're going to have to have a look at what's in the van. It's like, no, no, no. He's due on stage in five minutes. And they were like, all right, okay, yeah, let him through, let him through. Um, and I watched him do that show and he was in the middle of a bad mushroom trip and afterwards we chatted and sat down and we, we became really good friends after that um and i remember from watching that and the magic mushrooms that i took on that particular occasion and I, and now i can't remember whether he said it or whether it was the realization that i came to that like i've been i spent so much time trying to figure out what the meaning of life is and the realization that we're the universe experiencing itself subjectively, and when we die, that goes. So what's important is the interactions that we have and the connections that we make and the ripples that we create on the pond, because they carry on having effects long beyond anything that we will do, and that is truly what eternal life is. Um, 
you know, the usual sort of thing you realise when you're on magic mushrooms. <laughs> you know, the usual. You know, yeah. You, yeah, yeah, absolutely. The usual thing you, sure. you go, all right, okay, I've realised the yep. meaning of life. Fantastic. Um, and so that's kind of, and that's, that sort of really stuck with me that, you know, you do, you, you create these things and often you don't see the ripples that you have, but also in, in activism work and other stuff that I've done, it is, it is that thing of, of, you are trying to make the path easier for everyone who has to follow. And that's, that's always been my guiding principle. You make the path easier for people who have to follow, even if you don't get to see it. And I think that's, it's, it's why the price of being, well, <laughs> what the right calls a social justice warrior, because they have, they're absolutely terrible at giving us names. Um, <laughs> it sounds fucking cool. Uh, is that you eventually get to be irrelevant. You go and you create the world. You go and create this world. You make the path easier. You create a world that's better for people who have to follow. And your reward for that is that you seem old and out of touch, and that your Absolutely. ideas are yeah. ideas are no longer relevant. And when uh, that happens, you find yourself in this situation where you can either go, oh, "This is great," or you can go, "Well, this is terrible." No, I was right. <laughs> I was right all along. I, I should. They should be listening to me. They shouldn't be going off and doing their own thing. What um, what are you what on that? I d- I don't disagree with that at all. What are you anticipating? And I'm kind of asking you to uh, maybe be imaginative here. <laughs> what do you what do you anticipate will be the things that when you're in your 60s and 70s, you have to roll your eyes at and then roll up your sleeves and go, yes, I suppose this is fine. <laughs> what what things will you need to not only tolerate but embrace? Oh, that it- right now might seem. It's already Tanky. happening. It's already <laughs> happening, and and I love, I love that it's already happening because I've because ju- it's it the, something happened about three months ago that um, had I not made peace with this idea, not made peace with my aging and the fact that because I remember like coming out and being and being on the lesbian scene in the mid two thousands and seeing the older lesbians who had been around on the scene since the 80s and 90s, who'd been lived through, you know, supporting people through the AIDS crisis and going out and donating blood and doing all of those things. And them seeing the people of my generation out having fun and seeing that, and knowing from talking to various people that some of them, there was a, there was a bitterness to some people that Mm -hmm. uh, these young people were out enjoying all of the things that they'd fought for that they never got Mm -hmm. to have. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was kind of part of what made me go, yeah, that's, that's it because it's you know it's you're you're planting a tree that you never get to sit in the shade of um and the thing that really stuck to me the thing that that got to me was about uh yeah middle of last year it must have been somebody uh chastised me online because my language wasn't trans inclusive enough incredible and i thanked him and a bunch of people just went do you know who you're talking to (laughs) Sort of think, and I went no, 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 no. Thank you, thank you for this because I've spent so much of my life feeling like so many of these. I'm fighting battles on so many different fronts, and I so often feel like I'm doing it on my own. It's so good to know that there is somebody who's taken it up, and that my yeah, that I will become culturally irrelevant. That can my, I ask? Can I ask what happy? the correction was? That's fascinating, and of course that makes sense. And and it's uh, of course that makes sense. Yeah. Can you? Would you mind sharing what the what the correction was? I can't even like all I remember. I think I'd gone and just used women when I should have used cis women. Uh, Understand? Okay, gotcha. Because yeah. I think they'd said something like, "You're making out there like trans women aren't women and cis women." You know, you've you've not made that correction. And I went, "Thank you so much for pointing that out." Yeah, um, yeah. It was it was it was a throwaway tweet, but thank you. Um, 
yeah, I, but it was, it was just, it was that thing of like going, all right, okay, my language wasn't trans-inclusive enough. And it absolutely, yeah, that was absolutely right. A totally if, fair if, point. Yeah. And if I'd have said that five years earlier, if I'd have said the exact same thing five years earlier, not a single person, even in the trans community would have picked me up on it. Um, because things evolve and because culture changes. And, um, and I think that that is so much of it that, um, when you're sort of like under 45, you are part of the culture that is changing the world and you are part of going, this is the world that I'm an adult in and I'm going to, from the age of about 18 to, to 45, you're like, this is the world that I'm going to inhabit and this is the world that I want to change. And so young people tend to have the cultural power and then over 45, you tend to have the political power. So we're now reaching this point where, and and around about that age, it becomes so difficult for so many people to suddenly realise that all of the ideas that they had when they were teenagers about how they were going to challenge the establishment Mm. are now middle of the road and they're being told by people who are coming <laughs> coming behind them that they're, you know, your ideas for how you can change it. You are the establishment. What are you talking about? And I think that's the thing that a lot of comedians I've noticed. It was a thing that I'd noticed for about 10 years of going to the Edinburgh Fringe and seeing one comic after another sort of hit around about that age and then do a show which was all about what the hell is wrong with kids these days? They don't do anything like the way that we used to. Yeah. Uh, the kids are the ones who are wrong. Or like going fully embracing conspiracy theories at that point. That tends yeah. to be, it's one or the other. What, just as what, as a reaction to the the inability to see, like, I completely see that. I see it happen a lot. Yeah, it's and that I thing of they like, like, what's I'm, it a reaction to? It's, I think it's fate, I think it's fading cultural relevance. I think it's that realization that the world, that their, that their worldview is no longer young and hip. They're not the, they're not yeah it's if they've grown up challenging orthodoxy yeah and then they they've sort of found that this i can't even quite put my finger on it there is something like the you you consider the cultural orthodoxy of the comics in the car with you to be the prevailing cultural orthodoxy yeah and so you go well i'm going to challenge this then <laughs> you go yeah, yeah, yeah. that's not the orthodoxy you're supposed to be challenging there's still yeah. plenty of orthodoxy left to challenge yeah there's still plenty yeah. of it out there there's still and it's like it's the whole thing at the moment like people talking about cancel culture which i don't think exists but also by the same token it's that thing of even if it did it's a reaction to the rest of the culture not taking things seriously when people are going this bad thing's happening ah, just let people carry on talking uh, it'll sort itself out so people go, all right, okay, well, we'll sort it out then. We'll go, right, okay, well, you've said this and we don't think that that's appropriate. And as a result, we're no longer going to buy your products. We go, oh yeah. my God, they're trying to shut down free speech. Um, well, yeah. you know. I mean, really, it's accountability culture doesn't work as a, as a, it's yeah. not pithy enough. Can someone fix that? Yeah, exactly. So they're going, oh, well, okay then. Um, yeah. And it, I think it's, I think some of it comes down to, to that sort of experience and, and, and seeing that sort of thing happening um but it's so interesting seeing so many of those comedians who turn up at the so many comedians who get so close to understanding it and then don't and they go well i think this is terrible because i think with political correctness and people being woke you're going to scare comics off from saying exactly what it is that they really think and i think that would be terrible for stand-up comedy and you go yeah it would be and it is and it is when it happens and every single Every single gay comic that you know, every single um, black and Asian comic that you know, every single uh, female comic that you know, every single trans comic that you know, has found themselves deliberately self-censoring stuff that they would come out with, not just because, you know, it might get them cancelled from people online going, 
God, you've said something awful, but because it has real world uh, outcomes of things yeah. like getting attacked when you get off stage, like mm. having people come for you and sending you abuse all the time. I, I, I've ended up having people... Uh, when I had like a public Facebook page with a messaging thing on it, I once had somebody send a photograph of my front door with a threat um, because of something that I'd said on stage about being trans. Um, yeah. yeah, do you know what? And These... So that's an inescapable conclusion, isn't it? That people who haven't had to suffer that, largely white men, white cis men, um, are kind of, they have that like the... I don't know quite what it is. I, I don't know. I've got to Do choose you know my words Do, carefully. You know here, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and like, and, and I, yeah, because I know that a lot of comics listen to this, and I know that a lot of them will be very, very cross with me right now. And it, it's not. And saying this, it isn't a failure of of theirs because it is not something that you can spot unless you're told it. And that's the thing. It's like it's why I don't like when people talk about things like privilege. Um, and I don't like that privilege and oppression. I don't like. I don't like using the term privilege because the second you say that, everyone thinks of Jacob Rees-Mogg and, and you know, sure, and, sure, oh, sure. yeah. Uh, whereas what it is is it's an advantage. You have an advantage because of this mm. thing, whether you like it or not. Because that's a less loaded term. That's a less. That's a term which doesn't say as much. Well, it's yeah. your fault. It's not. You've just got an advantage. You know, you've got like some people have a height advantage. Some people have a weight advantage. Some people have a race advantage. Some people have a, a, a sexuality advantage. You know. Um, there are all of those things that you've experienced and you go, well, you know, you are advantaged in this way and you're disadvantaged in another way. Um, and the problem is with sometimes with these things is that you can't see them. It's like class. You tend to only be able to see class from underneath when you're looking up. It, it's so much more obvious than it is when you're looking down. Yeah. Um, yeah. Isn't that like most people in the UK who earn over 50 grand a year don't consider themselves wealthy? Yeah, because because they look at the the context in which they live, and they go, "Well, I'm not one of those wealthy guys over there." Yeah, and I think it's also because I oh, I did a, I did a really because oh, economics is one of my autistic special interests, um, <laughs> and I did a really please, long I did a really long correct blog. my facts. No, 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 it's true. But that guy who was on Question Time who said, "I'm I'm not even in the top. I'm not even in the I'm not in the top." 10% of earners. I'm yes. not even in the top 50% yep. of earners. And he was on 50 grand a year. Yeah, um, £23,000 a year is the median wage in the UK. Uh, if you're in the top 1%, you earn more than £106,000. If your entire total of your, um, if the entire total of your assets accounts to more than £35,000, then you are in the top 50% of rich people in the UK. These, yeah. these are, these are the base stats of that. And the thing is that you tend to hang, you tend to be the median within your group. So people always think that they're the median, the bandwagon yeah. effect. You, you will hang around with people who are a bit richer than you and a bit poorer than you. And you will want to be yeah. as rich as the people who are a bit richer than you. And you will be glad that you're not as poor as the people who are a bit poorer than you. And everyone does that right the way through to both ends of the spectrum. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah. there's literally only yeah, we've Jeff only got, We've only got three helipads, <laughs> not four yeah, like yeah. Bezos. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, there are people who hang around with Jeff Bezos who go, oh, yeah, no, I'm in the middle. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I only earn, I, I'm only worth, you know, I'm not rich. Yeah. I'm just comfortable. You know, I'm only I worth think of it. Half I don't know billion. if you've seen. I don't know if you've seen Succession. I think of this all the time. The conversation in season two of Succession, where they're going, "Well, you don't want five million dollars, then you're the poorest rich guy." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah, yeah, that's it. And I think it's. I think it's that sort of thing that if you're in the middle of it, you go, "Oh, well, you own because again, you're experiencing the world subjectively. You're experiencing everything that's going on around you, and you're going, "Oh, well, this is something that I do, and this is something that, uh, you know, these the people I hang around with all think this. So I am against the prevailing orthodoxy, and it's that." I think that's why 
I think that's why the idea of so many of the right wing comics who go, oh, I'm the only right wing comic or like that they're, you know, that they feel like they're pushing against something is partly because their view is different. So they end up getting they end up getting put on a bill in the same tokenistic way often that people from that people from marginalized communities do. Yes. You know, I don't see very many other female comics. I've been on a bill with one with a trans comic on one other occasion. And when I mentioned that to the promoter, I don't think he realized that one or both of us were trans. Yeah. Um, you know, you end up in a situation where they go, oh, well, I'll put you on for something a bit different. Bit of and so I think. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think that, you know, and especially when you see. Especially when you turn up to a gig where you're the only one of anything that's not related to the norm, and two of the other comics have the same name and have to dis- have to discuss whether or not they're going to do certain bits, and you go, "Huh, right, okay, so this is the norm, is it? <laughs> this is the prevailing yeah. orthodoxy." Um, yeah. And I think that that's again another thing which makes people feel like outsiders within a community, because like stand up, going into a green room with other stand-up comedians for the first time, like almost every comedian I've ever spoken to, it just felt like coming home. And there are things that you can say and there are things that you can talk about when you're chatting with other comics where you've got shared experiences and you go, yeah, we're all we're all the same and you can put aside so many of the differences that you have. But then when you get out on stage, you see people doing, you see what people want to talk about and the things that people do talk about and find funny. Um. And it's, it's finding the, it's, it's when you're seeing that, that's, that's where you see the differences in you. And that's where you see those things. And, and so if you, so one of the things that I realized that made me go, that made me realize that I wanted to get off the circuit in terms of stand up and just do my own touring shows more so, um, was that in spite of, in spite of doing all of these gigs all the time and being around people all the time as part of circuit shows where you've got three comics and an MC, I was still feeling lonely and isolated because I was very rarely on with any other women, very rarely on with any other gay comics, very rarely on with any other trans comics. Um, and so the gigs that I did where I did have those guys, where, where I was with those guys, the camaraderie that you feel as part of uh, as being in a green room was amplified by going, oh, this is what it must feel like for those guys. <laughs> this is what it must be like for those guys at those gigs, because they can talk about stuff, and then afterwards they can go and text each other and go, oh, do you want to go and hang out? And you go, yeah, okay. And you do all of those things that I just kind of still feel like an outsider of, when I, even when I'm in green rooms a lot of the time. Yeah, that was that was not something that I'd intended to reveal, but it's absolutely true, and I'm happy to. <laughs> so to wrap up, Let's get back to Twitch, because this this sort of brings us neatly back to what you expect now from the future of your comedy career, perhaps not quite what you expected before. We talked about vulnerability. We talked about your following and Twitch gives you a following and loves loves them some vulnerability. So talk talk to me about the difference between your comedy shows and your Twitch output, because I think a lot of people are, are have been pivoting in the last year. Yeah. Um, and I think you're someone that's really kind of got into that. So talk to me about your experience. Yeah, I have. Like, well, because after I'd done the uh, Mark Watson show, I'd got, um, yeah, it was at that point I went, oh, this Twitch is a thing that people are on and I'm watching. Oh, this sounds like quite a good idea. And I knew a couple of my friends, that, I knew that Ashley Story did it and I knew that Roscoe McClellan did it. Yeah. Um, and, I were, and I just, one night, on, on Twitter just went, would anybody be interested if I was to go and do a Twitch stream where I just went and played my old favourite Pokemon games 
uh, for an evening. Would anybody be interested in watching? And loads of people just went, that sounds amazing. So I went, huh, okay. And then went to do that, did one show of me playing Pokemon. I went, huh, yeah, I can think of a much better way to use this medium. <laughs> and then immediately just went and switched over from that into uh, into essentially what I do now, which is every day at two o'clock, uh, I do a show called A Brew and a Chat. Yeah, where I just react to whatever's going on in the chat. Uh, I have a yep. little chat box that comes up uh, because just recognizing that it's a new medium that's somewhere between radio and television, but also it's like live performance, but on on TV, but uh-huh. uh, where the audience can actually properly interact with it. So it goes. It's this this whole new medium that I think had been used for such a long time for just angry 14-year-old boys playing Call of Duty that no one has really gone, huh, what else can we do with it? And just looking through the things that people are creating on there is some fantastically creative stuff. Yeah. I think even more so than things like YouTube. Um, in that I, there's someone who I follow uh, called Squilky who comments on, but is joins in in the chat on mine, who does like six-hour-long um, streams of them doing pottery live. Yeah. Um, I've seen people doing all sorts of stuff. One of the stranger one I saw was a guy sat there silently reading a book for six hours. Um, <laughs> because it has... One of the most exciting things about Twitch for me is that it, it hasn't finished evolving yet. It yeah. may never finish evolving. So the idea of looking at it and going, oh, it's like interactive YouTube. Well, it can be, yeah. but it needn't be. People... I couldn't believe it the first time someone told me, oh, what I do is I, I put it on in the background. I use it like the radio. Yeah. Oh, right. You could do that with it. You know what I mean? Like, I, I, haven't, yeah. I haven't got my head around the pretty infinite sounding possibilities yeah i uh, someone one of my friends got in touch and went i really love your show and i was like oh god i didn't realize you were watching my show and they went oh no i just put it on it's like choosing who i get to have as my work colleague to talk to for the day yes um that you can sit there and just enjoy what it is that you're doing and just talk about things or play games and it's just about being it's it's about engaging with people is is what it is and it's making that connection and this is the thing that i really love about it is that it allows me to go through whatever I'm thinking about on that day, whatever's in the news, whatever it is that uh, has particularly caught my attention. And I can just talk about that for an hour and I'm finding an audience for it and my audience is getting bigger and bigger and I'm making money from it. I'm able to make money from it and recognising that I will probably be able to, probably be able to make about the same amount uh, from Twitch as I did from stand-up within a year. Incredible. Um, recognize no overheads, right? Yeah, with no overheads, other than the fact that I've gone and I mean, I bought the Blue Yeti mic that I have for, uh, for <laughs> sure. those things, but and no, I got no, a ring light. Far, far less in the way of running costs. Yeah, absolutely. Know. Yeah, all of those things have gone, and you know, and um, yeah, like so many of the things that I've needed for it, I went and put a wish list up on Twitch, and people who watch it went, oh, do you know what? Yeah, I'll go bunga fiver in to get you yeah. a, a new ring light or a or a. Mm-hmm. a proper tripod for your desktop so that you can get your camera at the right angle or we're all street performers now baby yeah yeah absolutely it's great and, and it's that thing of going yeah i can be a street performer with agoraphobia it's fucking wonderful yes there we go that's nailed it very good that's very that's, good. that's that feels like what it is and it's been it's been so it's it's been so good and so freeing and it feels like such a connection to other people because yeah. every single day i'm making that and it it feels like socializing in the in in a way performance and socializing and also unlike certain days when things come up in the news that i have like a keen interest on already that i've been able to do like one-off half hour shows that i've essentially been like just a half hour comedy 
lecture on a single issue, you know, basically like John Oliver does, only nowhere near as good, obviously, but all of, the, you know, all of those caveats, not even comparing myself to the person who I managed to annoy so much all those years ago at excess malarkey by being drunk. <laughs> um, <laughs> and asking him questions like six months before he went off to become famous. Um, <laughs> But yeah, uh, yeah. So like last week with the or whenever it is that you're listening to this, remember all the way back in January of 2021 when uh, the GameStop uh, stocks became a big big news story, um, and because of my keen interest in uh, economics and uh, and stuff around this and my love of the movie Trading Places, I did like <laughs> a half hour one off special show just explaining how the stock market works, what short selling is why these guys have done what they've done the good points and the bad points from it and managed to do that as a as a single uh, well it was a 45 minute comedy show that i'd basically written on the day and was then able to perform this sounds like to a to an agoraphobic to uh someone who is excited about ideas is sort of um has an incredible access memory that we you know maybe less good than you did when you were six yeah, perhaps yeah. but you know it's still impressive yeah, yeah. it sounds like it's a medium tailor made for you it is and it, particularly in 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 regard to the the interactivity and the, the talk to the following that i mean i've had my own uh, experiences of creating cult munities yeah. um on on twitch and um the the question i have is can you do you do you apprehend any downsides to it? What are the disadvantages, if any? What can you imagine, given that it is constantly evolving and you're pretty new to it, sort of less than six months at the moment? Yeah. What what do you anticipate? Do you anticipate anything that you've got to sort of steer more carefully? Yeah, it has. It seems to have the same drawbacks as doing stand up in terms of the amount that I give to it. Um, yeah the amount of myself that I give over to it. Cause sometimes when I'm having a bad day, when I'm struggling with my mental health, when I've done a show, I can come away from it and go going, why am I doing this? Why am I doing the, I'm making the exact same mistakes. I'm giving too much of myself. I don't want to share who I am all of the time. I just want to be on my own. I've got people who think that I'm ridiculous, who are watching this, who I don't want to be watching this because they're not the people that I want to be attracting because I've got my nice fans that I really like and they're not like them. And they're all, I can't escape that. And people are just always going to be mean and there's always going to be trolls everywhere. And I might as well just not do anything and hide away. You know, all of that horrible negative self-talk that your brain does. And on days, there are certain days when I can feel like that. Um, I think one of the things that I've managed to do to really help sort of get away from that is I've got a really great team of mods in my chat who managed to be on top of anything that's coming through. They managed to get rid of anyone being horrible or, you know, um, yeah, I think that's for me, that sort of seems to be the downside at the moment. I mean, obviously there's all of those things that you can't, that you, you can't, um, predict like, Will it still be successful in six months' time? Will this continue to build? I mean, the way that things are going, I can look at the trends of what's happened since uh, November when I started. And just looking at my viewing figures and my following numbers and my subscription numbers going up and up and up and going, right, okay. Obviously, it'll hit peaks and troughs and it'll steady off, much like it has done with any other form of social media. Um Is this a sustainable, is this a viable thing to be doing uh, to continue with? You know, or is it just going to be one of these short term things that I get, you know, I reach a certain plateau and it and it works well for a long time. But then other things that I have to do will provide me with more money, more security, more other things. So I won't have as much time to do these things. I don't know. 
Um, those are the potential drawbacks that I can see with it. Currently, I'm really, really enjoying doing it. Um, and I'm seeing this as a way of going, ah, right. And because I can see everywhere across the world, the people who like what I do, and I can see which countries they're in, and I can see what things it is that's engaging them. And I can go, right, okay, well, I can do more of this and this and this and this, so that when we are all vaccinated and can get back out into the wild, and I can go and do live performance again, I can travel all over the world and have enough people in these different places to come and see me do an hour-long show that I've spent six months writing and preparing. Final question. On Twitch, in terms of your status on Twitch, your following, your output, how does that fit into the idea of trying to impress the people at school who don't exist anymore? I'm, I'm not doing I'm absolutely, it feels like I've evolved beyond that now. It's, it's, it's one of the only mediums where I feel like I can genuinely talk about the things that I always wanted to talk about in stand up. The things where I was like, that's where the art lives, the stuff, uh, the experiences that I want to talk about and share where, because I was performing on Friday and Saturday nights in front of groups of people where I felt, oh no, I can't really talk about this on Twitch. I'm like, I don't even have to consider those people anymore. They're not even part of, they're not even part of, of my mental process anymore because I'm not doing anything for them anymore. This is entirely for me and other people like it. And I think that is how it feels like I've got to the purest form of what I was trying to achieve with stand up in the first place. What a place to end it. Thank you, Bethany Black. Thank you. So that was Bethany. I mean, what a great episode. What a great episode. The the price of becoming a social justice warrior is that you eventually become irrelevant. That's great. The, the reward is that you become irrelevant. I love that. So find Bethany, uh, Bethany Black with two Fs and an IE at the end, Bethany Black um, uh, on Twitch, twitch.tv slash Bethany Black and at Bethany Black on Twitter um, and enjoy those things. And uh, thank you to her for coming along. Thank you to Nathan for producing the show. Um, thank you to uh, Jake Crossland for the logging. Thank you to uh, Rob Smouten for the wonderful music. Your podcast consultant was Peter Dobbing and I remain steadfastly Stuart Goldsmith. Um, thanks to those of you who continue to get in touch, checking on me to see if I'm all right. I'm absolutely all right. Hey, here's who you should look at. Here are some people you should follow on Twitter. Ashlyn Draws. I'm assuming it's Ashlyn. I've only ever seen it written down. Uh, A-I-S-L-I-N-N. Ashlyn Draws. Um, and uh, as in draws things. D-R-A-W-S, you know, draws. Ashlyn draws. Have a look at that because Ashlyn has been doing incredible work um, doing a sort of comedy lockdown heroes pack of playing cards. And if you look at at ComComPod, you will see that the rather attractive picture of me as the someone of hearts. What am I, the sixth? I wanted the five. A bloody Stevie Martin got there first. Um, but uh, Ashlyn is phenomenally talented and um, is also accepting uh, commissions. So check those out. They're really, really good. Um uh, anything else? I feel like there's other things to say, but there's never enough time, is there? Let's face it. Thank you for listening. If you are a, a corporate person and you would like to book me for either an incredible uh, half hour of interactive stand-up comedy via Zoom for your business, which I can honestly, hand on heart, look you in the ear and say is great. And I've done a few of them. And it's so much easier for me to pitch than my own stand-up because this is, oh no, this is just quantifiably brilliant. If you want to get in touch about those or indeed the virtual office party, then you can get information at virtualofficeparty.co.uk. And by the time you hear this with a bit of luck, the all new stuartgoldsmith.co.uk site 
uh, will be up and running. Hey, here's a thing. If you know another guy called Stuart Goldsmith who owns stuartgoldsmith.com and offered to sell it to me five years ago um, and has since that his email address now bounces and I can't track him down, tell him to get in touch. I'd be interested in uh, restarting that chat. Who wouldn't want the .com when it's just sat there not being used? But um, I can't find him anywhere. It's great. Should we, do we do a manhunt? <laughs> Should we do? Absolutely. I'm going to absolutely walk back the phrase manhunt. But if you know personally the Stuart Goldsmith, who is the author of The Midas Touch, which is uh, sort of some kind of uh, uh, personal wealth management, some sort of thing like that, um, then by all means nudge him to get in touch with the other Stuart Goldsmith or maybe one of the other Stuart Goldsmiths if lots of us have been in touch with him, a bit like the movie Her. So <laughs> I'd be interested in me. So I'm not saying let's not do a manhunt. What I'm saying is, isn't it fun to try and track down a different person with your name? Hey, there might be a show in this. Quickly rewinds to 1997. Um, OK, gang, uh, thank you for listening. I could post Amble at you. I'll be honest, it's probably not a good time for me to post Amble. I'll explain why in the post Amble. Bye for now. So look, it's it's probably not a great time for me to post Amblee at the moment, just because I'm recording this on a Monday after having had a sort of reflective practice meeting with a friend of mine who is kind of like a business mentor. Uh, hello to you. Um, and uh, and then therapy. <laughs> now here am I recording a podcast. So it's been an absolute whirlwind of a day, but a very positive one. And um, thanks to those of you who've been in touch, checking that I'm all right. I am absolutely all right. Um, I got a lovely. Oh, I won't, I won't say who, but a lovely comedian texted me, and I must get back to them. Um, I'm doing really well. I think at the end of the Jordan Brooks one, I revealed that I'd been wobbling a bit. And it is a wobbly time for us all, but I'm feeling pretty positive. And I tell you what, the school's apparently going to go back in two weeks and right now the sun is shining. So let's not focus on what it's cost us. Let's focus on what we're costing it. Does that make sense? <laughs> no, it absolutely doesn't. Oh, that reminds me, though. Um, Reese James, I think, a brilliant comic Reese James, has been doing some very funny kind of demotivational posters. Um, so have a look for them. You can probably follow him on Twitter. Let's look while you're there. I think in the post sample I'm allowed to just... It's Reese Jamesy, isn't it? There we go. At Reese R-H-Y-S, Jamesy. So James with a Y on the end. Um, and his biog says he's a comedian and ghost. Why the fuck hasn't he done the podcast? He should get on it right now. Um, Anti-inspirational posters he's doing. So uh, check those out <laughs> to see one of them now, which I'm not going to repeat. Um, but go to at Reese Jamesy on Twitter and find out about them. And God, even his banner's funny. Jesus, he's funny. Right, I'm going to ring him up now and get him on. Um, thank you. That's everything. I'm obviously a bit manic. It's been a hell of a day, but great episode. Cracker in the can with Olga Cock. Oh my word, what a great episode. We get into the programming language of computers and the similarity of the parallels with writing jokes. Um, she describes a joke which she then describes as recursive, and I lose my mind. It's a fantastic episode. It's coming your way soon. And also... Three three really fun people are coming up. Uh, three really good, fun, funny people are coming up. But, you know, I never like to say their names until I've got them locked in the can. So for now, they will need to remain mystery guests. Bye for now. Thank you. Do check out Bethany Black on Twitter and Twitch. And uh, thank you for listening and all of that stuff. Yeah, it's absolutely fine. I'm absolutely fine. <laughs>
<laughs> oh god do you ever i'm sure i saw a tweet along these lines i think every comedian reckons that i, I think i think this and this tweet someone made the point in a tweet and i can't even credit them because i don't remember it's weeks and weeks ago um but it really made me laugh i'm just disclaiming the fact this isn't really an original thought this is someone else's brilliant tweet which i will now butcher just the concept being that every comedian thinks they're amazing in therapy honestly i think she should be paying me ah <laughs> oh, yeah a bit much too much too much Okay, bye for now. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.